0: The National Archives podcast series Jane Austen From Beginning to End Presented by Professor Fiona Stafford This talk was recorded on the 18th of July 2017 at the National Archives, Q. Well, of course this is a very special day to be thinking about Jane Austen um, It is 200 years um since she died so um this is going to be a kind of general uh introduction to her life um and i want to be thinking a little bit about her own resistance to ending as as you'll see um and in order to think about jane austen at the end of her life i think it's very helpful to go back to jane austen at the beginning of her life um So we have some slides. That's Jane Austen. That's the only known, definitely authentic portrait of her. And if any of you have been to the um, exhibition in Winchester this week, uh, you have a chance to see see this picture. It was uh, drawn by her sister, her sister Cassandra. So I thought we'd start with that. Um, But what I really want to be thinking about uh, is Jane Austen as a writer. This is Pride and Prejudice, probably her best... No novel. Um, and Jane Austen is a rare example of a writer who is universally agreed to be a great writer, critically acclaimed, um, but at the same time a very popular writer as well and it's an extremely unusual sort of person who, who pulls off both of those, those things. So um, Jane Austen uh, is highly regarded, there are books and books and books of scholarship about her work, um, Her her novels now are incredibly valuable. Um, A first edition of Pride and Prejudice was sold this year for £38,000. I think she'd have been quite impressed by that. Um, But at the same time, uh, as I say, she has this extraordinary popular appeal as well. So I just want to run through a few examples of her current popularity. Uh, There we are. You'll have seen this kind of thing. A mug, Jane Austen mug, Pride and Prejudice quotation. Pride and Prejudice <laughs> cushion cover, there's no end to it. But it's not new. Um, sometimes I think people assume this is just very much the kind of modern commercial, commercial age, but actually this is a biscuit tin, um, which is in my collection, uh, which came out in the 1920s, and there you are, you see. You can see Jane Austen already um, being used for these kind of domestic gifts. Um, this is based on a painting uh, by uh, Scottish artist Petty uh, at the end of the 19th century. You can see that's, that's the original painting. And already you can see by 1908, uh, there were gift books um, being produced uh, of Jane Austen's works. Um, people were already realising uh, that these would make attractive presents. Uh, so these are, um, these are the Brock illustrations, and that's a very attractive... At Mansfield Park, uh, which was being given as a Christmas present before the First World War. So there's nothing new about kind of cashing in on Jane, if you like. Um, that's putting it cynically. I think the other way to look at it is to say there's nothing new about her being highly regarded and loved by many people. And that's one of the things I think we should be celebrating today. So let me see what else I've got. There we are. <laughs> so that's one of my favourites. <laughs> So now, why is it uh, that she has this kind of wide appeal? As I say, not that many writers who are on uh, academic English literature courses um, inspire cutouts of their characters, but Jane Austen does. Now, one of the reasons, I think, is that she was very aware of how different people responded to her works. Um, When she was alive, um, she collected uh, people's opinions of of her books, and I'll read you a few of these. Um, With um, Emma, when Emma came out um, in very late 1815, by that stage, she was a very successful writer. This was her fourth novel. Um, It was the first one that had been published by the House of John Murray, which was the leading publisher of the age, the publisher who published... Byron um, was also keen to publish Jane Austen. So Jane Austen is pretty confident by this stage. She had also been invited. Um, to uh, dedicate Emma to the Prince Regent, which was a, a huge uh, compliment, even though she actually loathed the Prince Regent. She had to, <laughs> she had to go along with it. Um, but still, when it came out, she wanted to know what people thought. So she carefully records um, all the opinions that she hears about her new novel. So she uh, records her family's opinions. She likes to know what her mother thinks of it, what her brothers think of it. But then there's a big list Um, of other people and I'll read you a few of these opinions of Emma because uh, Jane Austen wrote them all down. Mr. Shearer he was um, a clergyman um, at her brother Edward's um, estate in Kent. He was the vicar of Godmersham. Apparently he was displeased with my pictures of clergymen. Oh dear. So who else was there? Mr. Fowle um, read only the first and last chapters because he had heard it wasn't interesting. Mrs. Digweed did not like it so well as the others. In fact, if she hadn't known the author, could hardly have got through it. (laughs) Mr. Cockrell liked it so little that Fanny wouldn't send me his opinion. So, it's quite interesting to see how um, she's almost revelling in these negative comments. Um, A lot of writers are incredibly sensitive about about reviews of their work and about opinions. Jane Austen immediately turns them into comedy, and I think this is so characteristic of her. All the way through her life, we see this um, way of dealing with the world. If there's something (coughs) that's not that agreeable, you turn it into a joke, and this is what she's doing. And also, what's also very interesting um, is right at the bottom of this long list of opinions, I I haven't read them all to you, um, just just a few, um, we find Mr Jeffrey of the Edinburgh Review. Now, Mr Jeffrey of the Edinburgh Review was probably the leading critic of the time. Um, And right at the bottom of the list, she says he was kept up by it three nights. (coughs) So obviously there's this enormous critical success, um, and she just pops it at the bottom underneath this big long list of all the people who didn't really like it very much. Um, So it's very kind of characteristic of of Jane Austen. Um, And I think this... um, Interest in what people think um, goes right back uh, to her, her childhood. So uh, this is um, this is what I want to just talk to you a little bit about. Uh, as I say, we're going back to Jane Austen's beginnings in order in order to approach her her ending. So, oops, I think she'd have quite <laughs> like that one. Right. So Jane Austen, um, as you, I'm sure lots of you will know, was part of a big family. Um, she had a lot of elder brothers. Um, James, George, Henry, um, Edward, all older brothers, Francis, and then we have Cassandra, and then we have Jane, and then one younger brother, Charles. So she grows up um, in a house of big boys, and this is something that often surprises people. I mean, obviously, I'm sure lots of you uh, are very familiar with her biography, but if you're not, and you've only read the The novels or seen the films, you might get a sense of Jane Austen being very much um, a woman with sisters. Now, she had one sister, Cassandra, who was very close to her all her life, but she also had a lot of elder brothers. Um, And I think that is quite key to the kind of writer um, she turned into. That may sound a little bit controversial, um, but actually... um, Her brothers uh, were mostly um, great readers and writers and they encouraged their little sister to write as well. Um, James and Henry, when they went up to Oxford, they started a magazine um, and that is probably where Jane Austen, aged nine... Published her first piece of work. There's a letter that was published in their, in their magazine called The Loiterer, um, and it's probably written by Jane Austen. It's kind of complaining that they um, that the content of the paper is a bit too much uh, geared to men, and couldn't we have a few more <laughs> couldn't we have a few more things that would be more interesting for, for young women? So, um, so you can see that um, Austen is being um, sort of fostered by a household of writers, intelligent people. Her mother also wrote comic verses. That's important as well, I think. Um, And also, I think, um, it it was a very sort of um, busy household, where if you are um, the youngest girl um, of seven children, you kind of have to do something uh, to draw a little bit of attention to yourself. And I think that was always... um, uh, part of the impulse for her uh, to, to write. She discovered very early um, that she was very clever with words um, and would write uh, short stories, little plays, um, mock letters, all kinds of things, um, and give them as gifts to different members of the family. And I think it was a way of showing that um, all these big boys might be doing all amazing things, but she, she was actually uh, worth listening to as well. So we, we can get a sense also, I think, of her. <coughs> Performing to a very indulgent audience, um, and that at the same time uh, was encouraging her her confidence. Um, so I want to read you uh, a couple of uh, Jane Austen's very early works. Again, some of you will be familiar with them, and some of you won't. But it'll give you a kind of sense of the sort of the sort of young young woman she was. Um, we have writings from Jane Austen. Uh, from her early teens, from, when, from about the age of, of 13, she was, uh, she was writing and <coughs> recording, um, recording her writings as well, keep, keeping copies of her writings in, in little books and, as I say, giving them as, as presents. But um, here, here's a good example. This is a, a letter from a young lady whose feelings, being too strong for her judgment, led her into the commission of errors which her heart disapproved. And this is how it starts. Many have been the cares and vicissitudes of my past life, my beloved Eleanor, because it's a letter. Um, The only consolation I feel for their bitterness is that on a close examination of my conduct, I'm convinced that I have strictly deserved them. So it begins um, very much like a kind of contemporary conduct book, a sort of confession of, oh, these are the things I've done wrong and now I'm going to have to reform. Until we get to the next sentence... I murdered my father at a very early period of my life. I have since murdered my mother, and I'm now going to murder my sister. <laughs> so, so she's taking this kind of conduct book and just obviously turning it inside out, and you can imagine her reading that to her mother and her father and her sister. This is an important part, part of the joke, really, to realise that this is for uh, a very kind of um, uh, lively uh, and, and receptive Receptive family. Another one. This is a this is a very short letter which begins, "My uncle gets more stingy, my aunt more particular, and I more in love every day. What shall we all be at this rate by the end of the year?" Um, this kind of thing, very very pithy. Um, but but some of them are, are just slightly slightly more extended. I mean, some of them are full, are full novels. And if I can if I can see this one, I'll read a little bit of this to you. This is a tour through Wales in a letter from a young lady. I'll just give you a different picture for this one. I think, but yeah, that's Jane reading. It's not really Jane reading, but it's a young woman of the time reading novels because what you see from her early writing is that she was a great reader as well as a great writer. You can't uh, parody contemporary fiction as cleverly as she does as a teenager if you're not reading an awful lot of it. So here is her tour through through Wales. <clears throat> she it, again, it begins a, a, as a letter, and she's describing. Um, going off um, to Wales uh, with her mother and sister. And this is what she says. We travelled on horseback by preference. My mother rode upon our little pony, and Fanny and I walked by her side, or rather ran, for my mother is so fond of riding fast that she galloped all the way. You may be sure that we were in a fine perspiration when we came to our place of resting. Fanny has taken a great many drawings of the country, which are very beautiful, though perhaps not such exact resemblances as might be wished from their being taken as she ran along. (laughs) It would astonish you to see all the shoes we wore out in our tour. We were determined to take a good stock with us, and therefore each took a pair of our own, besides those we set off in. However we were obliged to have them both capped and heel-pieced at Carmarthen. And at last, when they were quite gone, Mama was so kind as to lend us a pair of blue satin slippers, of which we each took one and hopped home from Hereford delightfully. so they 're just these perfect little little pieces, very, very well well crafted and, and designed um, designed to make people laugh, of course, um, but, as I said, what what you can see from these um, is how cleverly she was reading um, and uh, practicing her, her own art at an early age um, at this period. Um, the novel wasn 't this kind of dominant form that it is now, in fact, it was regarded as a, a slightly dubious form of. Of, of literature, it wasn't even really taken seriously as literature, and it certainly wasn't widely um, recommended for young ladies. So, again, it shows what a very unusual family the Austens were. Um, that Mr. Austen, who was a clergyman, uh, and his wife um, actually encouraged their daughters to read um, when a circulating library, this was one in Scarborough, but one opened in their home village of Steventon uh, in 1798. Um, and uh, Mrs Austen, Jane's mother, uh, subscribed uh, to the circulating library in order to let Jane and Cassandra read as much as they like, and she obviously read as well. And actually, um, George Austen, the the clergyman father, was rather fond of Gothic novels, so it's a very unusual family, the Austens. Um, And of course, because... at in, in that period uh, young women just didn't really have much, much of an education. Jane uh, finished her formal schooling by the age of 11. Um, so it is quite extraordinary that somebody who has had no real kind of formal education uh, should have gone on to write these extraordinary novels and in fact be writing that kind of teenage, um, uh, t- teenage literature um, herself. Um, and this is, this is because she, she was given this um, free access to, uh, to, to books um, and encouraged to write. Her father actually gave her a, a writing desk. So her, her, her mother and father were very much encouraging Jane to write. Um, and because this is a period where... Um, literature is beginning to become more accessible because there are circulating libraries. So even if you happen to be living in a small village, um, you've got more chance uh, of getting access to reading things which we take completely for granted. Uh, just weren't available to an awful lot of the population two hundred years ago. So, so Jane Austen was pretty fortunate um, in, in this way, and we are very fortunate as a result. And what I think you can see in those those kind of early early little sort of spoofs that she was producing. Um, is on the one hand someone who's very confident, very confident with a pen. You can Hear it in every single sentence she writes. Um, and at the same time, um, she's very aware of her audience, she's experimenting with different forms, um, she's coming up with ways of entertaining and preempting any sort of hostile criticism. Um, so, that sort of awareness of an audience and how every single word is going to be striking your reader um, is something I think we can see all the way through her career, and we can see that in those opinions she was collecting um, from Emma. I think it also helps her um, develop one of the things that is often seen as characteristic of Jane Austen as a writer, um, that uh, narrative voice. um, If you you read um, Austen's novels, which I'm sure you all do, uh, you're immediately aware of a very distinctive narrative voice. Um, And I think that early intimate audience that she was used to, that she tried all her sort of early writing on, um, help to create a kind of mature narrator who sounds like somebody you know. Jane Austen was very used to writing for people she knows. Obviously, she then publishes novels for lots and lots of us who, unfortunately, uh, don't know her. Um, But we get a sense that that we somehow do. Catherine Mansfield, um, who's influenced, very influenced by by Jane Austen, as pretty much all writers ever since have been, um, thought that the narrator feels like a kind of secret friend, and that's part of the uh, secret of, of Jane Austen's success. And that sense we have of somehow being in the know, um, I think, is, is, as I say, something that come, grows out of her, her early um, writing for the family um, and also uh, characterises her later writing, as you can see from this. This is um, obviously not one of her early pieces of writing. This is uh, the opening uh, of Mansfield Park, um, and here, I think, you can very much see uh, the tone that suggests that we're listening to somebody we already know. This is the first, this is the chapter one, page one, so we don't know anything about the narrator or the people we're going to be, um, we're going to be meeting in the novel, but the tone of it suggests that this is somebody telling us some, something that we might know something about. I'll just read it to you. Um, about 30 years ago, Miss Mariah Ward of Huntingdon with only seven thousand pounds, had the good luck to captivate Sir Thomas Bertram of Mansfield Park, in the county of Northampton, and to be thereby raised to the rank of a baronet's lady, with all the comforts and consequences of a handsome house and large income. All Huntingdon exclaimed on the greatness of the match, and her uncle, the lawyer himself, allowed her to be at least three thousand pounds short of any equitable claim to it. She had two sisters to be benefited by her elevation, And such of their acquaintance as thought Miss Ward and Miss Frances, quite as handsome as Miss Mariah, did not scruple to predict their marrying with almost equal advantage. But there certainly are not so many men of large fortune in the world as there are pretty women to deserve them. (laughs) So because this is set um, in Huntingdon, um, there is a sense that these are real people that we're hearing about. We're, We're sort of being told... Uh, about a family. You might have heard of the wards, do you know this? And that's the tone of it. Um, And because of that real um, realistic style and setting it immediately creates a sort of bond between the reader and the narrator. And it also um, makes us feel um, that, as these are real people, they'll also go on beyond the end of the novel. And this is something she creates again and again. And I think it's partly why, um, so often, uh, when people are talking to each other about Jane Austen, they talk about her characters as if they're real people. And there have been so many continuations of of her stories because she has this extraordinary ability to create characters, and not just single characters, but whole families, uh, and even sort of minor cameos, um, that everybody thinks of as if they know them. Um, And we take this for granted, but actually this was an astonishing achievement for a writer in this period, when the novel hasn't really developed as a form. Uh, Jane Austen's contribution to the development of the English novel, uh, you can't really overstate, actually. And it's things like this, which so many writers afterwards uh, copied, and we now think of, well, that's the kind of normal way to write a novel. It's only normal because she came up with it in the first <laughs> place, this, uh, this young woman growing up in rural Hampshire. Um, And we can see this uh, in other novels as well, this this kind of slightly gossipy tone. Here we are. This is from Sense and Sensibility. Um, So wondered, so taught Mrs Jennings, her opinion varying with each fresh conjecture and all seeming equally probable as they arose. Eleanor, though she felt really interested in the welfare of Colonel Brandon, could not bestow all the wonder on his going so suddenly away that Mrs Jennings was desirous of her feeling. So here we are. Um, We're listening to Mrs Jennings in this scene, and then we suddenly realise that we're actually listening to Mrs Jennings through um, the perspective of Eleanor Dashwood. Uh, So it's this very tricky, skillful. in a couple of sentences, um, we're moving from watching and listening to being almost inside the head of one of the characters. And this is another uh, thing that Austen's... Austin developed uh, in, her, in her fiction um, this sort of sense of being inside the head of a rather thoughtful, intelligent uh, person. Uh, we see it particularly uh, in Emma. It's what's called free and direct style, where you move from thinking you're listening to a narrator, looking at a character, having a scene created, and then you suddenly realise, oh no, I'm now in the head of, a, of the heroine, and you almost don't notice it happening. This is, this is a good example. The hair was curled, the maid sent away... Emma sat down to think and be miserable. So we're sort of watching Emma sitting down. Oh dear, it was a wretched business indeed. We're straight into Emma's head. This is this is Emma's thoughts. But instead of sort of saying Emma thought it was a wretched business, Jane Austen is so skillful. Um, she just moves fr- from the outside to the inside. Uh, extraordinarily skillful um, piece of writing. Such a development of everything, most unwelcome. Such a blow for Harriet. That was the worst of all. Uh, so it's a, it's a curious um, uh, <coughs> kind of almost interior monologue uh, that, that we, we get uh, as, as, her, as her work goes on. And of course, um, nowadays, a lot of people meet uh, Jane Austen through through the screen adaptations. Um, and that sense of being close to um, young women's consciousness is, I think, one of the big enduring facets of her appeal, Um, and it appeals to people for different reasons. Um, uh, I think directors are very keen on scenes inside... young women's bedrooms, for obvious reasons. There's a sort of intimacy going on. Um, but I think um, people are also uh, very interested. They become very uh, involved with the different characters. People start identifying with different, different heroines. And it's partly because of this, this style, because we're invited into someone's character. Even if it's a character who you might think you don't really approve of, you don't even like them very much, you can't help but kind of sympathise with their point of view when actually the narrative is coming through through them. Uh, But as I say, this isn't her her only skill. Um, As we know, one of the many reasons that she's so popular now um, is because of the screen adaptations. Um, In the mid-90s, we had uh, Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, we had Andrew Davis's um, Pride and Prejudice, very famously, um, and since then we've had many other uh, film adaptations. So... Jane Austen translates to the cinema very, very well. And one of the reasons for this, um, which Andrew Davis, who um, uh, adapted Pride and Prejudice, uh, will be the first to to say, um, is that her own dialogue is so very good. He said Pride and Prejudice was very easy to adapt uh, because a lot of the the dialogue in the television uh, series was straight, straight out of the book. Um, and this is another thing I think that goes right back to jonas 's childhood, uh, because at the Steventon Rectory, her brothers were very, very keen on putting on putting on plays um, she also uh, took, took part in them, uh, so she was not only reading a lot of novels she 's also reading a lot of plays. Uh, when she was in Bath or London, she used to go to the theatre a lot. Um, so she's very interested in how, um, how scenes work dramatically. And again, that's quite a difficult thing to pull off in a novel um, to, make, uh, to make dialogue dialogue work. But she's absolutely brilliant um, at doing it. And I think, um, in many ways, uh, Pride and Prejudice is the, is the novel uh, that we see this... Um, I'll just have a look at how we're doing for time, because... I've got various other things I want to draw your attention to, but I will read you a bit of this, um, and you'll see, you'll see what I mean. This is um, a, a passage from Pride and Prejudice, and you can see how, unlike um, the passage I was showing you in Erma, or Sense and Sensibility, where we're moving inside the characters' heads, in this one, we're very much um, looking at them and listening to them as if we're looking at a stage play. It's a little scene in the, libra- in, um, in the library... Um, and, uh, and it's Mr and Mrs Bennett speaking to each other. This is the moment I'm sure you will recall. Um, I'll just show you that, actually, because you might, you might prefer to look at that while I'm reading. Um, it's the moment where Elizabeth Bennet has just turned down Mr Collins and her mother is not at all pleased about this. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just read, you, read you this passage. And what you'll notice... Um, is um, that there is very little, oh, he said, he, she said, which we might expect with dialogue. Um, the dialogue flows almost like a, um, like a stage play, and there are even directions uh, in a way. So, um, Mrs. Bennet um, enters the library. She uses the word enters because it's almost like a, a stage direction. Oh, Mr. Bennet, <coughs> you are wanted immediately... "'We are all in an uproar. "'You must come and make Lizzie marry Mr. Collins, "'for she vows she will not have him, "'and if you do not make him, make haste, "'he will change his mind and not have her.' "'Mr. Bennet raised his eyes from his book as she entered "'and fixed them on her face with a calm unconcern "'which was not in the least altered by her communication.' I have not the pleasure of understanding you, said he, when she had finished her speech. Of of what are you talking? Of Mr. Collins and Lizzie. Lizzie declares she will not have Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins begins to say that he will not have Lizzie. And what am I to do on the occasion? It seems an hopeless business. Speak to Lizzie about it yourself. Tell her. "'that you insist upon her marrying him. "'Let her be called down. "'She shall hear my opinion.' "'Mrs Bennet rang the bell, "'and Miss Elizabeth was summoned to the library. "'Come here, child,' said her father as she appeared. "'I have sent for you on an affair of importance. "'I understand that Mr Collins has made you an offer of marriage.' Is it true? Elizabeth replied that it was. Very well. And this offer of marriage you have refused. I have, sir. Very well. We now come to the point. Your mother insists upon your accepting it. Is not it so, Mrs Bennet? Yes, or I will never see her again. An unhappy alternative is before you, Elizabeth. (laughs) From this day, you must be a stranger to one of your parents. Your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. <laughs> so, as you can see, Jane Austen is absolutely kind of uh, master of, uh, of of dialogue as well, um, and uh, and this this is, I think, why uh, they her novels adapt, adapt so well. What's interesting as well, I think, is that every age kind of reinvents Austen for themselves. I'll just speed up a little bit. Um, this is an Orchardson uh, painting, um, and actually many of the kind of modern screen adaptations haven't changed that much. A you know, hundred years later, people are still seeing Austen in this kind of way, all elegant balls and fans and uh, lovely dresses and very, very light always. Um, but if we actually look at the um, uh, visual culture of her own time it's very different. Um, that's uh, that's a, a kind of um, picture of Regency ladies from 1812. So this was published in between the publication of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. Now, obviously there were um, very much more flattering images of, of, of women of the period. Uh, but I think it's quite helpful uh, to see uh, these different sides of the Regency and, and it helps us to put our own... Um, sense of Jane Austen uh, in perspective. Um, You could see um, from some of those uh, gifts that I showed you at the beginning, there is a certain sort of view of Austen uh, prevailing at the moment. Um, And some things don't change very much like that idea of her having all those nice balls. Though, In fact, if you read her books there's very little description of dresses and balls. There's dialogue at the balls but there's very little kind of scene painting. Um, But this I think is... um, Kind of characteristic of a 21st century interest in Austen, uh, Jane Austen, kind of action figure. That is very, very different um, from that image of um, the biscuit tin, for example. Uh, this is the much more sort of post feminist empowered uh, idea of Jane Austen. Um, this is interesting because this is uh, a t shirt that young women uh, now are happy to wear but actually in Jane Austen's uh, novel it's an insult. <laughs> so it's quite interesting to see how uh, different ages respond to Jane Austen and some of the things are very consistent and enduring and other things actually say more about our own age than they say about, about her novels I think. Um, this of course is Jane Austen's um, House now the uh, museum. This is where she was she was living from 1809 right through uh, to her death. Well, obviously the last few weeks of her life, she moved to Winchester. Uh, It's now it's now a museum, Um, and this I think um, gives people a certain idea of Jane Austen uh, as a kind of uh, spinster living in the country, writing at a small writing table. Lots of you will have been there. Um, we have to remember, I think, that a lot of our um, biographical detail about Jane Austen comes from her nephews and nieces. And I think if you think about how well you know your, your aunt, um, that helps to put some of the uh, biographical information into perspective. They had a very particular view of her, um, which may not be the whole picture. Um, but it, it, it's, it's interesting to, to visit it and, and see how all of these different uh, material things have kind of feed... Uh, our current idea of Jane Austen uh, which is often a bit different from what you actually find in her writing um, that's a, a, a picture that's in the collection it's in the exhibition downstairs uh, that's an older picture of Jane Austen's house um, almost kind of unrecognisable actually but, but, but that's, that's it and that's, um, that's uh, probably from the 20s, it's certainly before uh, the Jane Austen Society managed to uh, acquire the, the house um, as, as a museum so it's, it's, it's very interesting to see that I think um, but often people, because they have this idea of Joan Austen living in this house, writing her little novels at a little table, um, they think of her um, as completely cut off from the great events of her day. Um, so we have to remember uh, that this, again, is part of the visual culture of her day. <laughs> um, for most of her life... Um, Britain was at war. Um, she was born in 1775, so the first eight years of her life, it was the American War of Independence. There was a brief six years period, and then, when she was 13, the um, French Revolution happened, um, and all the way through uh, from her teens, right to, through until she was 40, Britain was engaged in the biggest world war before the First World War. So she is a wartime writer. And people wonder... Where, where this is in her novels. Why, why doesn't the war appear if that's, if that's what, was, what was happening? And they think, oh, well, that's because she was living in this nice little country cottage with her little table, writing <coughs> her books. But I don't think this is an adequate answer at all. Um, you only have to see to what extent her work has always appealed uh, to people in wartime situations to realise that something in her work very much speaks to people who are living through times of crisis. Um, Famously, Churchill, during the Blitz, uh, was uh, reading Pride and Prejudice or having it read to him. In the First World War, uh, they prescribed Jane Austen uh, for shell-shocked soldiers coming from the front um, and and in the the hospitals. Um, And there is this, this kind of long tradition of people in wartime situations somehow responding to Austen, and I think, again, it goes back to her own, um, her own experience and her own situation. Two of her brothers were in the Navy, um, Frank and uh, Charles. So all the way through this period of war, um, with Napoleon just across the Channel, uh, her brothers uh, were in danger of um, not surviving. Um, and I think when you read a novel like Persuasion and you see um, Anne Elliot's... Kind of the heroine, Ann Elliot, uh, her knowledge of the Navy lists, um, which comes out very clearly, you can see reflected in that Jane Austen's own knowledge of the Navy lists. Um, people will be reading the papers; they'll be reading um, the lists of the casualties, um, and for Jane and her family, all the time there is that worry um, that one of the one of her brothers is going to be is, is not going to survive. So, she's, it's not that she's not aware of the war; she's incredibly conscious of the war. But I think just because you're living through the war doesn't mean you're definitely going to write about it directly. I think it's there all the way through her her writing. It appears in all sorts of forms. If you think about Pride and Prejudice, the arrival of the soldiers, Mrs Bennet thinks, good-o, some potential husbands. But actually, that sort of movement of troops... Um, is direct comment on, on the war. It's a direct response to what's, what's going on. Pride and Prejudice um, was a novel that was um, originally kind of uh, conceived in the in the 1790s uh, when the war had uh, just broken out, and it was revised and published in 1813, and the war was still going on all that all that time. Um, and it's quite interesting, I think, to see uh, Mrs. Bennet's search for husbands in this wartime context, because obviously, from her point of view, with five daughters. Um, she is trying to find them all husbands um, and the supply of husbands is diminishing all the time because, because of the war um, and because um, we know from the novel that if anything happens to Mr Bennett which it might very well given the state of medicine in the time, at the time um, the house will just go to Mr Collins and Mrs Bennett and her five daughters will have nowhere to live uh, there is a real kind of anxiety in Miss Bennett, Mrs Bennett's Um, desperate search for for husbands for her girls Uh, but I think we can see um, again Jane Austen's sort of attitude to what is in some ways a kind of dire situation and could be presented as a kind of tragedy in other hands her way of dealing with that is to laugh Uh, it's always her sort of default position if things are threatening unpleasant um, she is always um, kind of unbowed by them and uncowed and I think this is again um, one of the reasons uh, we like her so much and why she continues uh, to be found by new new generations who respond to her work in very different ways um but that sort of resilience and that sort of combative attitude I think a uh, uh, kind of feistiness if you like but I think that's much too uh, kind of contemporary a word for it um is is something uh, that is that is very um that that is there all the way through. And I think if you think about a lot of the scenes in her books, the characters, they're often sort of standing up uh, to bullies in interesting ways. That's why everybody loves Elizabeth Bennet so much, I think, because she's not cowed by Lady Catherine de Burr and everybody else in the book is and Elizabeth isn't. There's a sort of feistiness. She never sort of loses, uh, loses her, her calm at all. And I think we see this with Jane Austen herself. Um, I'm just going to come on to, to the last um, the last part of her life, having been thinking more about her her childhood and her her, her life as a, as a writer. If we think about her last, her last year, um, when she knew she was ill, she knew she was dying, her response to that um, was to write a comic novel uh, satirising hypochondria. Um, so that is quite an interesting response to somebody uh, who, is, who is seriously ill um, and becoming more <coughs> ill. But I think it's, again part of this, this kind of feistiness. We also see her thinking about um, the future as well. Um, let me see, I'll just move on. This is uh, Jane Austen's will, which Juliet was talking about. That's really the reason for this talk, because uh, her will um, is held in the National Archive and it's on display downstairs. And it's a very, it's a very moving document. She wrote this in April 1817, um, three months before she died. but uh, She'd been quite poorly um, for the fortnight before, a, a letter two weeks before, is talking about how unwell she's feeling. And she very quietly uh, wrote her will. Um, She's leaving everything to her beloved sister, Cassandra, but she's also thinking about her brother Henry and his housekeeper, and and she's leaving a legacy to them. And she's also um, making sure that her own funeral expenses will be paid by her. So it's a very kind of um, short, to the point, uh, but also very thoughtful document and very moving one, I think. This is the other side of it, because she wrote it... Uh, privately, it then had to be uh, approved uh, later when, when they found it, because she didn't have a witness. She just quietly got on, decided what she wanted to do uh, with it. Um, she moved to Winchester um, <coughs> because uh, they thought uh, she might be... Uh, she, she would uh, benefit from the, the doctors there. Uh, and this is where she died, and this is indeed where, where she's buried as well, as I'm sure uh, lots of you ha- have seen. Um, but um, you might think the Will was her, her last piece of work, her last writing, but it wasn't. Um, that's the Register of the Death Duties. Uh, again, a very moving document, which I will not pause on, because I want to end with this. This is Jane Austen's last work, uh, written three... or dictated, because she was too weak, um, three days before she died. Um, and... Uh, So although you might, as I say, might think her last will and testament is her her last word, it isn't. Um, This this is her her last word. And 15th of July, of course, uh, is St. Swithin's Day, as it was um, in Jane Austen's time as well. Uh, And the legend is that if it rains on St. Swithin's Day, it'll rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And Jane Austen is lying in bed incredibly poorly, but still thinking about... Um, the ironies of Winchester races (laughs) being uh, set uh, for July and she's also thinking about St Swithin um, who is uh, buried at Winchester as well and she's thinking about the legend of St Swithin having been buried outside and then when he was canonised he was brought into the cathedral and he wasn't at all pleased about it so I'll just finish you by reading what is Jane Austen's very last words Um, and it's kind of characteristic I think of this very resilient woman um, who tends to look at the blackest things um, and just bat them away and make a joke uh, that this is what she does here as she's dying it's um, a joke on the English weather so I'll I'll finish with this I'll read it from here, because the light's better. When Winchester races first took their beginning, it is said the good people forgot their old saint, not applying at all for the leave of St. Swithin, and that William of Wickham's approval was faint. William of Wickham is the Bishop of Winchester, of course. The races, however, were fixed and determined. The company came, and the weather was charming. The lords and the ladies were satined and ermined, and nobody saw any future alarming. But when the old saint was informed of these doings, he made but one spring from his shrine to the roof of the palace, which now lies so sadly in ruins. And then he addressed them all, standing aloof. Oh, subjects rebellious! Oh, events depraved! When once we are buried, you think we are dead. But behold me, immortal! By vice you're enslaved. You've sinned and must suffer. Then further, he said, these races and revels and dissolute measures with which you're debasing a neighbouring plain, let them stand. You shall meet with your curse and your pleasures. Set off for your course, I'll pursue with my reign. Ye cannot but know my command, or July. Henceforward, I'll triumph in showing my powers. Shift your race as you will, it shall never be dry. The curse of Onventer is July in showers. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.